Okay, everybody, this is Charlie. Uh, it's the podcast to Helen back. And the date, if you are listening live, is Wednesday, February 27th. I think it's about the 45th podcast. And uh, I said if you're listening live, so I just, you know, I've developed an honest relationship with you, so I've got to come clean with you guys, anybody who's listening. Well, I'm actually recording this six days before February 27th. Um, because I have a special guest today, and we needed to work things out to be on a different day of the week. So um, I just want you to know, not that it matters to you, um, but you might be listening the 27th. You're probably listening at a later date. And I look forward to these next three podcasts, and I'll tell you why. Many times since I started the podcast, people have contacted me and said, could you could you have a conversation with any people who have been through having a psychiatric illness or, um, uh, or, or borderline personality disorder and what they've been through and what kind of hell they've been through and, and what kind of solutions they've come up with and so that I can identify with that? Because I've been, I've been contacted by people who are struggling with recovery. And, uh, and then I realized, well, I haven't really talked to anybody quite in that. I've talked to people with other sorts of tragic situations. Um, so um, that leads me to today. So let me introduce t- today for a minute. Looking back in about 1990, 1991, it was the second or third year of having developed uh, an inpatient program based on DBT started it in the late 80s. Uh, And in the early days, it was very exciting. The the staff was new and very devoted to this, and we worked really hard at it. And and so it was kind of the early days, the way in which sometimes when you start a new project, in the early days, you've got the greatest zeal, and you're really putting it together. Um, In fact, it was in 1990, I think, that Marsha Linehan came for three months herself and helped us... uh, uh, think about and worked with us and watched us and gave comments about how we were working. Well, in that little era in 1990-91, there was an individual who came to the program, uh, a young woman named Andrea. And she had been in two hospitalizations for many months um, during the time before that, leading up to that, for anorexia. And, with, and she was depressed. And now she also had suicidal thinking and some features of borderline personality disorder, though maybe not fully. And she entered our program, and we worked with her for a few months. And then she went on to our day treatment program, also in White, both of these in White Plains, New York. And the day treatment program also based on DBT, and we developed that program as an offshoot of the inpatient program. And Andrea came across as a quiet person, kind of a little bit held back, reserved, um, really smart, uh, maybe somewhat perfectionistic, um, very serious about stuff, um, and, you know, serious maybe to the point of depression. Um, and on the whole, she was very well liked by our staff. The most difficult thing was that people felt sometimes they weren't very good at helping her, which was very difficult and painful. Um, and <clears throat> she had a a very important relationship with someone I've talked with with this podcast about, uh, our psychologist, my best friend, Cindy Sanderson, in those days, who later 
uh, passed away in 2003 of cancer. Um, but she, um, Andrea, had a very con- strong connection with Cindy, who also became the director of our day treatment program. Well, anyway, a few months ago, I, I heard from Andrea by email, um, who, as it turns out, had been listening to the podcasts uh, already. I forget if she told me where she had heard about them. But she was moved by the episode that I devoted to telling the story of Cindy, which, if you wanted to find it, is, you can find it based on its title. Um, we corresponded by email back and forth, sort of catching up with uh, what had happened to her in her life. And it was just really good to hear from her. And she, her, her whole self came back to my mind uh, quite fully and immediately once we started talking. Um, by this point, she's had a lot of years uh, to do things. And she's, she's a published author, a writer. Uh, she also a blog poster <coughs> about <coughs> mental illness and recovery. She's a licensed clinical social worker in New York. Uh, who worked in New York City for 18 years and continues to work now in the White Plains area, I think. And she has struggled mightily in her life for years first in a DBT treatment approach, the day treatment program, and then into working with a private therapist. Um, And and then um, a lot of years intervened, and then more recently in a treatment approach called transference-focused psychotherapy, which we haven't spent much time on in this podcast. It's called TFP, and it's really Otto Kernberg's creation uh, of, of a psychoanalytic approach for borderline personality disorder. So she's, she's had both of these incredibly important therapies, probably the two best-known therapies in the world for this, and she's had really good versions of, of both of them. And so that's also a really interesting thing that she's been through and has experienced the the pluses and minuses of two different models of treatment. Um, And as she was uh, launching a project and and coming to fruition related to recovery and mental illness, she also suffered from a stroke um, not that long ago and had to rehab from that. So she just had another whole recovery to go through. So now, as you can guess, Andrea has generously agreed to talk with me for the next three podcasts. it, it, it actually fits her own agenda of feeling like to help people recover, people need to hear stories about the lives of other people who've gone through difficult things. And it certainly fits exactly the point of this podcast. So it's sort of a win-win and, and talking. We don't know how it'll go, but that's, uh, it seems like a really promising thing. And it's her hope in mind that her story and the lessons that she's learned will be helpful to some other people who listen uh, who can identify with parts of what she's been through and who can who have to cope with adversity of the kind that she's also had to cope with. So, um, And then it's going to be interesting when we get to it <clears throat> over these three times to learn what we can about um, the different, uh, from her viewpoint, what it was like to be in DBT and to be learning skills and trying to implement skills in her life and then also to be in transference-focused therapy, which is more a, a psychoanalytically-oriented therapy and um, what the differences and similarities are. So that's my sort of introduction to this, and I've really been looking forward to it, and I want to get started. So Andrea, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks, Charlie. Um, really looking forward to, um, you know, speaking about, you know, basically what you said has been my adult life. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, everything I've gone through, and I really hope that, um, you know, people can, um, everyone listening can, you know, get something out of this. Um, you know, as you said, that people have been asking for you to speak uh-huh. with someone. You know, is there was there any in in my in me telling about the you know about you um was there any glaring errors that i made or anything that you'd want to um set the record straight about something i didn't get quite right um well when you were talking about um you know being on the um dbt unit at new york hospital you know you said a couple months a few months it was more like closer to 10 months yeah 10 months okay Yeah. yeah it was longer yeah, I couldn't remember how many months was there before you went over to the day treatment. So 10 yeah. months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a very long time. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, okay, well, look, um, I thought that where we would start, um, because I just don't want to jump into the middle of the struggles you had before, as, as a podcast, we kind of get to know you a little bit. Um, and so I just wanted to ask a little about, like, can you just say first, like, where are you now? I don't mean this moment, though that's fine. Also, <laughs> I know. But I've been in your life these days, uh, living, where you're living and working and what are you doing? And, uh, you know, what, what's your life made up of at this point? Okay. Um, so as you mentioned, I, um, I had a stroke um, not too um, – um, pretty recently, it was actually Memorial Day weekend of last year. Um, mm. So um, physically, um, I'm pretty um, much recovered. Um, the stroke did um, have some left me with some cognitive um, problems, mostly in the area of um, executive functioning. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I had taken uh, five five total months off from my job. Um, I, I worked as a psychiatric social worker uh, for a uh, major um, managed care organization. And uh, what my job consists of is going out to the uh, psychiatric hospitals and meeting with people um, that we cover. And uh, we work with, um, you know, people that have, um, pretty chronic illnesses, and we try and work with them to avoid, um, you know, seeing them get readmitted back into the hospital. So mm-hmm. um, I was um, working, we uh, telecommute um, from our home, and I was um, working from home. So now um started back part-time. And I'm mm-hmm. working on a part-time schedule mm-hmm. and um, working with a private uh, neuropsychologist um, mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, get back up to hopefully full-time uh, speed again. A and pri- I wait, you're, in- working with a, you're working with a private neuropsychologist for your own <coughs> recovery, <laughs> recovery, sorry. For my uh, own recovery, right. Yeah. And... Um, you know, and um, and I live in White Plains. I um, I live not too far from um, New York Presbyterian Westchester Division. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's about it. I mean, I, um, you know, the rest of my, the rest of my time is spent, you know, again, you know, writing, blogging, seeing friends and family. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I get tired easily still, um, you know, trying to really, you know, uh, the stroke, thank God, was not as severe as I saw uh, in the rehab. I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, it did affect, really majorly affect my life. So, mm-hmm. really, you know, trying to get back mm-hmm. up to speed. So, totally, totally. I mean, yeah. do you do you have a partner in your life? Is there somebody you live with that's your your one person, or is it mostly friends and family that you interact with? No, it's mostly uh, friends and family. Um, my both both my parents uh, passed away. Um, I'm very close to my brother, who is only 18 months younger than me. He just got married for the second time. Uh, he lives up in um, Stanford, Connecticut, which is only about a half hour away from me. Um, I have an 11-year-old mm-hmm. niece. Um, I have mm-hmm. some, you know, a small, cir- a small circle of good friends, um, mm-hmm. you know, acquired from different aspects of my life. I, you know, I attend um, a couple of writing groups. There's a great local writing center. I go to readings, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, uh, taking classes and um, stuff like that. Um, and, um, you know, my father, you know, to start, you know, basically when my life started, my father was an alcoholic. And um, as, um, you know, girls' relationships are really um, affected, their ability to um, form healthy relationships with men are affected by their uh, first, you know, the first men in their life, their father. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mine was not, I did not have a good relationship with my father as he was, you know, drinking. So mm-hmm. that unfortunately affected my um, ability to, you know, to form relationships, you know, for the rest of my life. So I don't, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I, I never married. I never had a, you know, a live-in um, partner um, or anything else. So, you know, that's something mm-hmm. that I worked on in therapy a lot, you know, um, but, um, I also am an introvert on the continuum pretty high up, and I need, <clears throat> also need a lot of time alone to recharge my batteries. So, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's something I've accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, that's where I am right now, and that's okay. Now, was your father the kind of alcoholic that was <clears throat> kind of was behaviorally out of control in the house, or was he just sort of, quiet would just drink himself to sleep or, or would he be um, mean? What? He was, he was not uh, physically violent. Um, my father was very intelligent and when he drank, um, he could be very uh, cruel and sarcastic with his words. Mm. And mm. Um, a lot of his um, words, uh, you know, phrases he used and things still, you know, stay with me very much. Mm. And um, he also was very demanding um, of, um, uh, you know, protection, you know, um, like of knowledge, 
you know, um, that you had he to, used know to take me <clears throat> take me to the Metropolitan and you know quiz me on the paintings and um, you know the Westminster Westminster Dog Show was just in town and he used to take me to Madison Square Garden and go you know what we we used to walk around you used to be allowed to walk around where the dogs were being groomed and he used to say what breed is mm. that and what's the um, standard for the breed what's the height you know what kind of uh, what group does it belong to the hound group the toy the toy group, you know things like that mm. so mm. Um, you know so there things like that sort so. of things like that where you where he showed his interest in you in ways that were demanding of you and pushing you and measuring you and um, scrutinizing what you know and maybe showing that he knew more. Right. Um, and I never, I never felt good enough. And that's something that's persisted, persisted uh, for a long time. And, yeah. um, and I never felt that I was able to please him even, you know, even until he passed away. So, mm. you know. Wow. Long-lasting stuff. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you know, I do remember when I said that you were very serious, um, it would be going too far to say that this is what that was. But it's consistent with that. I mean, you did seem introverted and you seemed very demanding of yourself. And, and perfectionistic in what what you should know or that you should know how to do stuff. Um, yep. It seemed like yeah. you, were, you, were, you were under a lot of internal pressure um, to get yeah. things right. <clears throat> yeah. And, and so you grew up with your father and... Um, and my and mother. You, your mother. What, about, what was your mother like? Uh, my mother was actually... Um, um, you know, it was like um, black and white. My mother was uh, quite, um, I mean, y- y- I want to use the word brilliant, which would not be, um, you know, overestimating. She was actually um, uh, graduated from uh, New York University. That was actually where my parents met. Um, at the age of 20, she, was, uh, she worked as a computer programmer in the uh, late 1950s uh, on the UNIVAC, oh. which was, you know, Oh. When like what what was on a chip, you know, fit now or whatever they call them, fit into a you know was took up a whole room, and then right. when um, right. and then when uh you know uh she she quit to have me, and then my brother eighteen months later and she stayed home with us, and then when my father lost his job, uh he was a financial analyst uh in downtown, um. She opened up a um, like a knitting store to um, support the family close to home, so you know she could be there as much as she could for us. Excuse me. Wow. And um, you know, and she was writing patterns by hand. There were no computers, you know. Wow. Yeah. Um, so then, my parents divorced finally when I was a senior in college. Uh, my mother actually had an affair um, mm. with a high school boyfriend, and um, she went back to school to learn a couple of the um, newest, you know, then the up, the updated uh, computer languages, then called uh, FoxPro and uh, FoxPro and mm. uh, DBase, 
Mm. And, I mean, this mm. is a story I love to tell because it just, you know, exemplifies her. She went to work for a uh, rather large focus group company on Long Island, and after six months, you know, she had her first review, and she didn't get all excellence or the highest ranking, so she quit. And she mm. started her own uh, software company, you know, custom software company. And she was, she, um, she was quite successful until, you know, unfortunately she passed away um, too early at the age of uh, 68 in 2002 of uh, pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Right. You're yeah. saying that after, it was after she did that knitting store that she went right. on? to work for a company right. when, after after my parents divorced yeah after my wow. parents divorced yeah wow. she had the ninny she closed the ninny store it was my senior year of college which would have been uh 1982 oh. um oh. yeah and then she went back to school now was she um was she someone who was um, different than your father in being at all more accepting or close to you or warm or more relaxed about things? Because it sounds like she also was kind of had her own version of perfectionism going on. Um, yes, um, she was in um, much, much, much more uh, demonstrative and warm and, yeah, and accepting and all those things. And, um, you know, um, once my parents divorced, I, you know, I... I mean, I hardly ever saw my father, um, mm. and I was out of the house. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where he had. To, uh, he had did, I'm sorry. Mm. I was just wondering um, where you went to college. Were you near home? Um, no, oh. I went to um, SUNY Buffalo. That was 800 miles away because oh. um, because of um, you know my parent, my father losing his job. Our uh, financial situation was. Um, you know, kind of strained, and um, my parents told my brother and I flat out that we had to go to a state university, and um, that was about as far away as I could get from home without going out of state, Mm -hmm. and uh, my brother, my brother went, came to join me there a year later, so. Oh, he did. Yeah, I had a great time, though. Your brother was 18 months younger than you, so you grew up really as a twosome. Or, or yeah. was it like that? Or, or were you really not? Well, together? we fought. We, we had, like, normal sibling, you know, issues. We fought. Um, you know, we bickered. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but once we both got to school, college, um, the same college, we just, we had each other's backs, you know. And it's been mm-hmm. that way ever since. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Now, um, is, do you have the perspective on yourself to say anything about, like, what you were like as a little kid, let's say during the, you know, elementary school years and middle school and high school? Um, I mean, I remember, like, just I was the good, I was, quote, unquote, like, the good girl, like, always terrified of making waves. I kept my room, like, obsessively neat. I did my homework without being asked. Um, but I was always labeled as very sensitive. I cried very easily, you know, at the drop of the hat, um, so to mm. speak. Um, I was, um, I remember being like terrified 
of kind of being like away from home, like at sleepovers at friends' houses and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I just um, feelings were not discussed in my house, um, mm-hmm. especially anger. Um, mm-hmm. Anger was emotion that was not allowed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, and um, I know at at fourteen I was um, started smoking pot at high school. That was when I went to high school. It was mm. just something that everyone did, and I did it, you know, to be cool. But I ended up really liking it. And I did it all the way through high school and college. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was done in the dorms. It was accepted. You know, I went to Buffalo, mm-hmm. chicken wings, beer, and pot on Saturday night. I didn't like beer. I just didn't, never liked the taste of beer. But mm-hmm. I just smoked pot all through high school and college. Mm-hmm. And my parents, I mean, I would walk in the house. Every day after school, high, my parents never noticed, so. Oh, really? And my brother, yeah, my brother, too. I don't even know what mm. he did. He did more stuff than I did, but. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when you look back on it now, do you think um, the pot <clears throat> in any way interfered with your, like, stuff happening, developing in your life, um, or do you think it helped you get through? Um, I think it helped me get through. I think it, you know, mm-hmm. calmed the anxiety and the inner fear. I had, um, you know, I played sports in high school and college. Um, I played basketball and softball. Um, you know, a lot of the women on the teams I played on um, were gay. I had a lot of confusion about my sexuality. Um, I had, like, a semi-crush on my coach, coaches, and uh, we mm-hmm. were also smoking pot with our coaches, and I really just had no one to talk to about it. Um, so, um, so the pot helped, you know, calm the anxiety. And um, high school is when I first started having a lot of body uh, image issues. I had the women on my mother's side of the family um, all had um, – very big um, breasts, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, my mother was like a double D. I developed into a double D, and later in my mid-20s, my mother suggested, and I wanted it, breast reduction surgery, mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, um, it was at, you know, I had it, and it was actually one of the best things I ever did as, you know, an uh, athlete, um, mm-hmm. you know, because sports bras hadn't been invented yet. So, um, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. so it made me much more comfortable and less um, self-conscious, you know, mm-hmm. growing you, up. When, <clears throat> I mentioned when we started that you had developed at some point in your life anorexia. When you say you had body image issues in high school, did you, did you have tendencies towards anorexia then? You know, uh, not, not. I mean, I tried, I tried to, you know, to restrict or diet a lot at that point, um, but I never could go more than a week or two, um, you know, because, you know, I got hungry. I wanted, you know, whatever I was depriving myself of. I, I remember looking at, you know, the, the girls in my, in my 
classes and on my teams that were naturally thin and envying their bodies and stuff like that. Um, I mean, of course, you know, this is the time before the Internet, so there was nothing like, you know, Instagram or any kind of pro anesthetics or anything like that. So um, there were just, you know, print magazines with the models and stuff like that. But um, um, what what ended up happening is that um, I went – after college, I went into my first job was in, in, in an advertising agency as a secretary because I had majored in communications, which basically didn't get you anywhere. Um, so, and I remember the day I accepted the job um, because I happened to pass the typing test that day, <laughs> and um, <laughs> really I had failed, and for that, some way that. For some reason that day, I managed to pass, and I just got home and I cried because I felt like I had failed my parents. But um, wait, why had you failed your parents? You get you passed because I was a sec- I had a college education and I was going to be a secretary. Be a secretary. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I had um, since I had played softball in college. It was the summer. And the advertising community at that time in 1982 in New York City had this huge, uh, what they called the New York Advertising Co-Ed Softball League. So Mm -hmm. I joined the team, and because I could play, you know, from college Mm -hmm. and high school, I immediately became like kind of the standout and really well-known, you know, throughout the league. And we used mm. to go uh, to this bar on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and, like, party um, after the games. And um, I ended up playing on the co-ed team. I ended up playing on a women's corporate team. And then I ended up as a pitcher pitching on a men's fast pitch team in Central Park. So I was playing on three teams. I was partying. Wow. wow. I was introduced to cocaine, which I absolutely got uh, hooked on, um, and the mm. cocaine kind of, you know, dulled, dulled my appetite, which is a feeling I, I you know, mm-hmm. I kind of really liked. And then um, one of my coaches, um, this guy, uh, you know, I, I talked, I was talking to him a little bit, and he suggested that I try therapy. Um, you hadn't had I, it up to that time? It, it I hadn't had it. No, mm-hmm. no, I never even thought about it. Um, it mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, although it was New York City in the 80s, it just hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought about it. So, um, so I went into therapy for the first time in the, this was the um, mid-1980s, um, because I told the therapist I was, this was a social worker on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, and I remember asking my boss if I could leave early, you know, for an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because, um, you know, I was, I was around all these guys all the time, and mm-hmm. 
you know, in softball, and I said I just nobody was asking me out, and I didn't know what I was doing to push them away. So that's mm. what I went in on the premise of relationship issues. And, uh, you know, she asked me, she goes, how are you, what do you feel? You know, what, and I said, a feeling, what's a feeling? And I just remember that so clearly. Mm. Um, and, mm. you know, she, she taught me the vocabulary of feelings, so to speak. And I just, once I started working with her, I just got so depressed. Um, mm. and, um, I just kept spiraling down in and further, further and down into like, you know, pretty deep depression and, you know, depression runs in my family. I mean, even my, on my paternal, uh, grandparents' side, my grandmother. And, um, mm. after about two years, she referred me to a psychiatrist for medication and, mm-hmm. I don't know, he was pretty elderly, and I don't know what happened, but it turned out that the medication he gave me was not an antidepressant. It was um, a stimulant. Mm. And I don't, I don't know exactly what happened. Um, mm. And it totally, totally shut down my appetite. And mm. that's when I, be, that's what, caused the anorexia mm. and um, I lost and I just want to um, put out a trigger warning here because I'm going to use um, numbers mm-hmm. um, I lost 43 pounds in six months mm. Wow <clears throat> yeah to a state to a state where you were really quite thin I take it very thin I was, um, yeah, I, um, at that time I was 5'6", and I was, you know, uh, under, you know, uh, under 100 pounds. I mean, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, so it really so, changed your, your everything, it changed your physiology, and it made you more like um, <clears throat> value and have that feeling of being thin and being somehow able to control your diet and... Um, can you say a little more about, because there may be people that listen to this that know something about anorexia, but they don't know what it would be like from the inside? Well, I mean, for someone that, you know, that values perfection and has always sought perfection and control when, you know, every aspect of the life, your life seems so out of control, it's just like everything falls into place. And... Um, it's mm-hmm. like uh, the more you can control, the more you want control. So you say, I'm going to set a goal of 110 pounds, and then you get to 110 pounds, and that's not good enough. You want more. And you, you actually, I don't know the physiology, but when I stepped on the scale and I saw that a weight loss, um, I actually felt a high, you know, similar mm. to when I was using the cocaine. The cocaine. And that made me crave, continue to crave the same reaction. And, mm. um, you know, when I was able to skip a meal or go a whole day without eating, you know, it's like control begets more control. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and um, 
you know, even when you, when I, like, ran my hands over my body and I felt the bones, the hip bones, my collarbones, my a concave mm. stomach, I mean, it just, you know, it was like ecstasy, you know, I mm. mean, mm. um, Mm, and when, some when, kind of perfection thing. Yeah, and when, you know, your clothes, you can slip your zippered and buttoned jeans off uh, mm, your right. body without unbuttoning them. You know, I mean, it's right. just, you know, right. I mean, everything about it, it's just, um, it's like approaching perfectionism. And but there's a saying that you know the only perfect anorexic is a dead anorexic. Mm. You know that goes yeah. around. So yes. Um, yeah. So for some yes. reason, um, this therapist just watched me. You know, just basically, you know, fade away or you know just become a skeleton, and she didn't say a word, and I don't know why. And it was my mother actually who just scared of her, terrified. And I was living alone. I, I mean, I was, you know, 27 years old. I had my own apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, started calling places for uh, eating disorder uh, units for, um, she had a bed and we ended up somewhere in New Jersey. And she just put me in the car and drove me out there and uh, ended up staying there six months. And by that time, I, I had, um, you know, started climbing the corporate ladder and I was, had a, you know, pretty nice position at a, a, a major international packaged goods um, uh, organization as a uh, consumer promotion uh, development manager and uh, consumer promotion before, again, before the internet were those uh, coupon inserts that used to come in the newspaper and doing yep. sweepstakes and things like that. So yep. any right. any kind of, uh, you know, financial incentive. So, um, so, yeah, so she, you know, so I ended up staying at that unit for six months, gaining back like 40 pounds, which is a substantial amount of weight. Mm-hmm. And um, my job actually held my position for me for six wow. months. Um, and this was before the American with Disabilities Act. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, that I think says something about how they valued me. Absolutely. But, but you know, I mean, it was kind of too late. I mean, anorexia had taken a toll. So over the next year, even without the help of the stimulant, I lost most of the weight I gained and had to go back inpatient for four months. And, you know, this time my job, you know, they just said, you know, I'm sorry, you know, we can't hold it for you. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> you know, I was just thinking about what you're saying so far, Andrea, and that um, it's, yeah, you can always see these things develop in, like, in retrospect, like that you were in a family where there was um, different, in different ways, there was, there was struggle, there was strain, there was stress, and there was, the effort to do things right. Your mother was brilliant and, and did these things and your father was quizzing you and, and things that went along with that and, and that you were probably temperamentally a sensitive person. I mean, maybe you became a sensitive person, but chances are that kind of sensitivity that you were probably kind of, um, you know, the 20% of Americans are born shy and, 
and uh, and fearful or anxious and sensitive and um and so you were probably one of those people and in this situation and and you took on the idea of trying to solve life's problems by doing things right you know not offending people and and appro- being approved of and doing well and doing things correctly and and not learning how to talk to people about feelings and how to talk to people about what's going on or what your dilemmas were in life. It just seems like if, if you look and you look in the retrospectoscope, it seems like, well, of course you became anorectic. Uh, though, though the triggering event for you becoming anorectic was actually all that weight loss with, um, with stimulants um, driving you there. And that does tend, tend to get you into a cycle of physiology as well as sort of a perfectionistic uh, driven drivenness you're in a trap um right so it kind of adds adds up and it's very striking that you as articulate as you are that back then the when i wrote it down when you said how did you put that you said there was no one to talk to um that just seems like so huge that there's no i mean you're you're the only girl in the family you're growing up, you have a difficult father, and you, and you have no one to talk to. Like your mother wasn't the type that would talk about feelings uh, or, no. or, talk, or ask you about no, your feelings? No, I mean, you know, she was working. You know, she, was, yeah. she had the store. Um, she was tired when she came home. And, uh, you know, I just, I didn't, I didn't think I should bother her, I guess. Right, right. You know. Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, you were sensitive too, and introspective, so um, it isn't like you needed to go bother her. Uh, but some, it was just something you didn't get. And um, growing up, that might have been, you know, a partial antidote to some of what you were going through. Um, and and the fact that you were in New York for that long and in an intelligent family, and nobody had been put it, giving you the suggestion to go into therapy is. So, you know, I, I come from a small town in Oregon. I mean, nobody would have been in therapy. I mean, nobody would have heard of therapy. <laughs> I don't think anyone in my family has ever seen the inside of a therapist's office. But, you know, New York, New York City, um, when I've lived there, it's like everybody knows about therapy. Um, so it's, and, and you went to SUNY, you know, not, not that it would have come up there. You found your pathway in sports and in uh, uh, smoking pot and hanging out with people and and all of that, but um, yeah, it's just a little striking that that whole part of life that has to do with observing your feelings and then describing them to people and then uh, getting them validated, all of that DBT stuff just wasn't going on for you. No, it wasn't at all. No, and I don't and, think it was and, happening for my brother either. You know, both mm. of us kind of. Yeah, grew up in that kind of wasteland of, you know, feelings mm. and, and validation and stuff like that. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, what when you? Um, it sounds like it was very hard. I mean, the stakes were very high for you about this <coughs> anorexia. <coughs> you didn't know for sure you'd lose your job, but it must have been very noticeable again that you were. Uh, losing the weight that you had gained when you were in the hospital. And it was probably, um, again, a triumph to be losing that weight again, or, or was it not like that? No, um, I'm sure it was. And it was probably, um, 
you know, even more important to me at that time than my job. Because, again, it was um, something that was um, under my control. And uh-huh. you don't even, you know, because, because of the um, body distortion and you're like, you don't realize, you don't think you're thin. You're, you don't think you're thin. You think you're overweight. Um, you just, right. you know, you, you mistake the excess skin for fat. And you're just, yeah. you know, your mind is going, um, you can't, you can't eat that, you know, you can't eat that spoonful of yogurt, you're too fat. Yeah, you that know, spoonful of yogurt is going to appear on your body somewhere. Yeah. It's going to make, make you fat. Yeah. Um, because your standards become so incredibly um, tight. Um, yeah. And... And skimpy that that almost anything violet is too much uh, at that mm-hmm. point it's it's a such a ho- horrible imprisoning state of mind um, to be in and there you are in your 20s and you're trying to it isn't like you're just a teenager trying to get through school having anorexia where a lot of it would start but you're in your 20s and you're trying to have a career and, and right then you and you're actually lost your right. job yeah right Wow. Wow. Yeah. Look, I mean, it wasn't only it wasn't only a job to me. It was, um, you know, I was so proud of a career that I had built over, I guess, seven years or from a secretary, you know. And here uh-huh. I was at this, you know, huge corporation, this, you know, really uh, leading international corporation. Right. And. Um, had an office and business cards, you know, and, uh, right, right. You know, yeah, that's sort of a, a, a big accomplishment at that point. And then you're on the other hand, you're, um, wasting yourself away. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm interested in this, Andrea, another, in another way, there's one of the things that was often done in treatment of anorexia in the hospital certainly was true at New York Hospital, New York Presbyterian, what's now called New York Presbyterian, where you were, where you and I met, um, is that on the unit there, the, the big goal was for people to gain weight. And so there right. was a big, big push about watching what people are eating, watching how they're eliminating things, making sure they don't exercise, making sure they don't use laxatives, and measuring and, and making sure people gain weight as if that's a success. But, you know, it's right. funny that's- that when you, when you think of that, that's sort of like, as a strategy, it's like more of the same. It's like to, if the problem is the problem of being overly controlled and being overly driven and being overly perfectionistic, and then you make the way to treat somebody to be controlled and make them gain weight, and that that's really the goal, it still seems like looking back on it, like that's just a huge problem. I wonder what your experience was of that. No, it 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 is, and I don't. I think back then, I mean the, um, I mean that was that was the way they thought they were helping, but it right. it was basically almost like force feeding because you would you sat you know and everybody was watching you and there were all these rules at meal time, and um, you know right. then. Um, you were you had to take all these um, N chores or the caloric supplements, 
And if you didn't finish, um, you know, 100% plus the insurers, there were consequences, and then you had to sit. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just very rigid. And um, if you gained the weight, you were considered, you know, quote, unquote, um, cured, you know, but no one got to the underlying causes. So, of course, you know, when you got out, you know, the first thing you're going to do is shed this all this disgusting weight. You know, so that's mm. why, you know, I was hospitalized, my God, like, inpatient eating disorder units like seven or eight times. Mm. Um, mm. You know, and... Um, Not just the two times you mentioned. No, 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 no. Um, no, it just kept, I just kept cycling. I mean, I, I went through periods of having, um, you know, a couple of years out, but I'd, I'd always have the certain weight in my mind. And if I hit it, you know, the next day, this, it would be like the switch would be turned on, you know, um, if you hit and I what? just, I start, I start restricting. I see. I see. You know, it really is, I, re, I you know, I remember being, um, now you were an athlete. I don't know if you were also a runner. Did you do no, running? No, not also, really. Or mainly it was like baseball, softball and stuff. Um, softball, it, um, <clears throat> yeah, softball and um, basketball in college. And then I, you know, I did like rollerblading um, mm, and some other mm. stuff. But mm-hmm. no, I never ran. Because there's something very much like that with runners when uh, they, they, they're not much of a runner and then they start running and they get to where they can run a 10-mile run. And then at some point it clicks in almost the way you're describing it. They think, damn it, I'm going to do a 50-mile run. And then it's push, push, push. It's, it's like make sure you eat just right, make sure you push yourself, make sure you go through the pain. And then I got to do a 20-mile run, and then I got to do a marathon. And, then it's, and, and there's a drivenness for some people, not everybody, but it becomes equally tight and depressing and serious as if all life depends on mm. getting to a certain weight or all life depends on living by the rules or all of life depends on the speed that you run at, or, you know, it's all of these things are sort of interrelated ways of being overly controlled um, and driven. And it sounds like you had your own dose of that, but you, the drivenness took the form of, of, of an anorexia at that point and, and, um, and a seriousness. Um, do, you, do you know about the treatment uh, in DBT that has been developed that's sort of adapted to anorexia? You mean the radically open yeah. DBT? Yeah, yeah. I've, read, I've actually just um, recently read about that for adults. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I mean, that's interesting because the targets of that treatment are very different kind of targets. Um, they're targets where there's three main things you, you keep working on and you learn skills to do and you practice and the goals are to become more open as a person, uh, and that includes with emotions, and more transparent and more vulnerable, and let yourself be that way. Um, second, to be more flexible in your choices so that you don't have to, you know, you can really live by all kinds of different rules, and you, you learn flexibility as a person. And the third is to be more social, um, because there's a tendency to not be social, but to be inwardly focused all the time to not be open, but to be controlled all the time, 
and to not be flexible, but to be rigid and really, you know, controlling your weight or, and so it's yeah. applied to anorexia as well as OCD and other overly controlled things. But it, it's a very different approach than the previous approach with anorexia that I think you got more of, which is let's control this anorexia by asserting more control over the anorexia. Mm-hmm. And there's something fundamentally not an antidote there. Um, we can right. say that now, but in those days, people thought it was the right thing to do. Right. Oh, oh, no, yes, and something. the other thing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. The other thing that, um, you know, that was developed um, with the anorexia was this um, sense of um, overwhelming sense of um, su- superiority. Um, where I could, like, go to a food court and, again, you know, eat a couple of tablespoons of yogurt and watch everyone, you know, else stuff their faces, basically. Right. And then I'd feel, like, so incredibly superior. And um, in some sense, you know, I've continued to struggle with that, you know, at Mm. work um, and in other places in my life. So that's something I, I continue to work on uh, when I entered um, after the first couple of years of, um, you know, TFP, um, when mm-hmm. I got to a place that we were able to get, you know, into things a little more deeply when things um, stabilized a little bit more. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm wanting us to get to that probably by our third meeting or maybe even next yeah. time. But that's a really interesting thing. I, I think it's, isn't it sort of telling the way you just said that, that, You'd go to a food court and see yourself. You could have a couple teaspoons of yogurt, and other people are feeding, are stuffing, or feeding their faces. I mean, that yeah. idea, rather than <laughs> is there is there anything in between two teaspoons of yogurt and stuffing your face? I mean, there well, might not be when is. you have that yeah. mentality. Of course, there is. Well, now, now, now I can see it, but then I could not. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You know. I had a little touch of uh, this uh, to some degree about the food stuff, but I identify with what you're saying because when I was in school, people would go out and have fun on the weekends. And um, like they might go out and have pizza or go out after a football game or go out uh, skiing or something like that. And I would often stay home and study. And I would Mm. push myself so that I would know everything. So, and I used to feel like, okay, I want to arrive on Monday at school uh, where, there's, where I can just nail everything that happens. Um, and, and it was a drivenness to it. And it also, when you said that, it reminded me, it, it came with a sense of superiority. Look at all these people out there wasting time having fun. Uh, yeah. You know, look at these people that are just either stuffing their faces or having a good time <laughs> while I'm getting ahead. You know, and, and it's a, such an illusion of getting ahead, just like getting thinner is an illusion of being superior or eating less is an illusion of superiority. These are very um, powerful things that lots of people have. Um, mm-hmm. But you know what you don't describe very much up to now, and we're going to, we have about mm, a few more minutes, but you don't, you don't up to this age in your 20s that you're talking about, um, probably up to an age just before I must have met you, uh, around 90 or 91, is that um, you're not describing things that somebody would typically say, oh, that's borderline personality disorder. Um, At least not these days. I mean, because there would be more out-of-control emotionality 
Um, yeah. There'd be um, more suicide attempts or self-harming well, I behaviors. Well, I actually did make a suicide attempt while I was seeing this therapist. I, I did uh, take a knife <laughs> and try and kill myself um, by cutting my wrists. And, oh. um, but I didn't tell anyone, and I didn't go deep enough to do any, um, anything that would um, require any medical attention. But that's mm. how I actually found out about cutting because mm. it just brought me such a sense of, um, again, this, you know, release and this um, escape from numbing. Um, mm. So, mm. but I kept it a secret. I didn't tell anyone, not even didn't the therapist anyone. I was seeing. No, not even really? the therapist I was seeing, which said something, obviously, about the relationship. Yeah. Well, it does. It says something about the relationship or what had been established in the relationship by then and, and says something about you because it isn't like you were in the practice of telling people a lot of stuff before that anyway. Um, right. Secret things, you know, feelings or things that you or that someone might not approve of. Um, that'd be the last thing in the world you would do is go tell people stuff you're not, you know, that they aren't going to approve of. So I'm sort of understandable, but, but also something didn't develop in that therapy that uh, some language, even though she may have taught you some language of emotions, there wasn't something that developed that made you feel, I want to tell her. I, I don't want to keep this secret. Um, so th- there was a, a value on keeping that to yourself. And it, because the function for you of the cutting was not to communicate anything to anyone else. Right. It was very internal. It was to, it was to, it was to give yourself a certain kind of relief from a certain right. feeling state. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the initial one was, was like, you know, actually to try and kill myself. And I was like, well, this is harder than it looks in the movie, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, or harder than, you know, than you read about it. It's hard to go deep enough to, uh, to cut the main artery or vein or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you mm-hmm. thought it was going to be. And, and then I was like, mm-hmm. well, hey, you know, this feels pretty good regardless, you know. Mm. And then did you continue to cut? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so that became a pattern. I mean, so, I mean, that, that is typical of borderline personality disorder. And so would be the, you know, you're trying out things like drugs, you know, cocaine and, and pot and alcohol and um, that kind of impulsive behavior. But... A lot of your impulsive behavior also seems like it was done in a controlled way. Um, but still, it would, it would qualify if you were trying to figure this out. And, um, and, it is, and you were emotionally sensitive, which sometimes, which definitely can go along with it. Um, what about interpersonally, Andrea? Did you, were you highly sensitive to being left by people and be feeling abandoned by people? It's not something yeah. that fits with what you've said so far. Um, um, I mean, I was, um, being abandoned or being, um, kind of just, um, I mean, I used to have this fear, the way our apartment was laid out in Queens, it was like a two bedroom and the dining room was converted to a three bedroom. So yeah. I had the converted dining room, which was, um, on the other side of the apartment than my parents' bedroom and my brother's bedroom. And it yeah. was also right next to the window that had the fire escape, and we were on the first floor. So uh-huh. I used to have this terrible 
fear that someone would climb up the fire escape and like kidnap me. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So, I mean, that's not exactly being abandoned, but it is like in some form. And, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, when I used to try and, I got up the courage one day to, you know, sell, tell my mom and she was like, Oh, don't be silly. You know? And, um, so yeah, like any, yeah. any, any idea of being separated from my family, mm. um, you know, mm. in, in some kind of permanent state would just terrify me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whether they would die or, um, or I would be taken away or something like that just constantly haunted me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. again, you know, if I, if I dare to say something, I would get a response like, don't be silly. You know, yeah, that, so that's why I just kept it to myself. Well, it doesn't exactly encourage you to say anything more about it. It's kind of a judgment. <clears throat> it's like, mm-hmm. it makes it sound like you're being ridiculous when, in fact, it's a pretty deep and important concern you had that, you know, you would hope that your mom would say, oh, my God, tell me more about that. But it's just wasn't, yeah, that well, wasn't, wasn't there for you. Um, yeah. So actually, if I go around asking some of these questions you know you did definitely border on more borderline uh, personality disorder features also um i can't remember when you were at our inpatient hospital whether we regarded you that way since we regarded most people at our inpatient unit as borderline personality disorder in fact most people were diagnosed that way um but i do what well, i remember you the the uh, some of the other qualities but yeah you were you were kind of in your own quiet way uh, afraid of certain things, sensitive to certain things, keeping a lot of things to yourself, um, wanting, you know, hurting yourself, wanting to die, um, probably feeling kind of uh, isolated, uh, maybe empty. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had lost my job. Um, I, after I lost my job, I was in a um, day program in um, Midtown Manhattan, and uh, yeah, one day I just yeah. got up and and made a more serious suicide attempt. So yeah, um, so that was all there. So all of yeah. this, is, we're going to stop in just a moment. And all of this is leading up to the time when I first met you. And so that's sort of what I hope today is we get to know some things about your life up to that point in time and and have a chance to reflect on it. So between now and next week when we talk again. Um, I'm going to give some thought to this. You can give some thought to this. Um, and just kind of filling in any other blanks or making sense of things. And then um, I'm really trying to think, I am going to want to ask you the question maybe early next week. Um, like if you, knew some, if you knew yourself, let's say you knew yourself now, like you're the, you're the person you are now, but you're talking to yourself as a 22-year-old or something like that who's going through some of these things, what you would say. Um, what, what, what would be helpful to somebody? What if somebody's listening that identifies with a lot of what you're saying? Um, you know, I think they could already get something out of what you're talking about, but both of us could think about more of that um, to help people with their own recovery. Okay, so, I'll give that some thought. So give it some thought, and we'll pick up next week with something like where you're leaving off now. And... Um, yeah, 
let's just take it further. I'm so deeply appreciative that you coming on and talking about this. You're you're really um, articulate about it at this point in your life, and and in a way that's just right out there. I yeah, I think it reflects an enormous amount of practice and work that you've done to be able to tell this story this way. Yeah, thank um, you. Yeah, a lot of therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm a sort of a fan of it. all right andrea so we'll be um talking next week which for people listening will be the wednesday the first week of march uh at four o'clock that's when that'll be played live um but this but um so everybody that's listening um you know tune in for our second conversation if you're if you're interested and i i hope you are and andrea thank you very much Okay. Thank you, Charlie. Okay. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.